you know, I think we get caught up a lot of times in trying to compare ourselves to others around us. And it's good to have a little friendly, healthy competition with our peers. But I think at the end of the day, you got to you got to drive yourself and make sure you're controlling what you can within your own abilities and, and staying in your own lane. So I also think it's good to not get too caught up in, in comparing yourself to everybody around you. Welcome to the Edge of Excellence podcast. This show is for current and aspiring leaders that are dedicated to showing up every day in their lives with excellence. We break down the careers of those excelling so you can understand what is out there and how to rise up in every field you choose. Let's get the show on the road, shall we? Your host has spent his life promoting global entrepreneurship, helping 20-somethings find their passion and working to help others achieve excellence. CEO of CollegeWorks, Matt Stewart. Welcome to the show. Thank you for listening and be sure to share this episode with any of your buddies that are looking to get into real estate because we've got a guest on today, 40 years old with 500 properties. We've got Doug Diakite who lives in Southern California. He's going to talk about the real estate business. He's going to talk about his startup story and we're going to get into the power of grit and how he found it. Welcome to the show and welcome to the Edge of Excellence. Well, holy moly, we got a great guy today from UC Santa Barbara, the Harvard of the West. And I didn't even know, living in San Clemente, only about five miles from me and right where my daughter works, we got Doug Diacate here to talk about real estate, acquiring north of 500 properties, his path to being a real estate inventor, inventor, probably, but investor and his nationwide community revitalization company focused on single-family homes and a lot of them with a cool little twist, rent to own. So he's helping people out. Doug, thank you for making time from, I guess, surfing. Oh, no, you have kids. Thank you for making time from making sandwiches, playing on the floor, and then obviously conquering the world in real estate. Thanks for being on the Edge of Excellence today. Yeah, Matt, thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this with you today. Appreciate it. It's been a while. We're going to start off the way we always start off. Doug, what is your definition of excellence? Well, I would have to say, I think it's fulfilling and expanding your potential. And I think, you know, what your potential is today could be very different than what it is in a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And I think if you keep pushing those boundaries, keep pushing yourself, uh, you can expand your potential and maximize and fulfill it. Okay, I got to throw a yellow flag. Where's my yellow flag? Here it is. I got a yellow flag. So you may not, not know this, but uh, I'm not a very detail-oriented person. And so if I, focused on, if I focused on being an accountant or a doctor or an analyst or a coder or an engineer or a lawyer or any of those things, and we got the episode on disc, I think it's in the first 10 to talk to you about what you may not be good at. If I focused on, uh, uh, on accounting, and I reach my potential, I would still be a shitty accountant. So do you need to fulfill and expand your potential in something that you have a unique ability in, something you're good at? Or do you think I could become a good accountant or an excellent accountant someday? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I like that you're adding that to my definition because you want to put your efforts towards things that you do have good um, natural abilities at so that you can really truly excel. I, like you, Matt, I'm, I'm not a huge detail guy. One of the things that I struggled with at UCSB was uh, was accounting. I ended up having to move out of accounting because it wasn't for me. Oh, my God. Yeah, they don't have a business major there. So people come to the UC schools, they want to go into business, and they have to choose accounting or economics, which half the business world doesn't fit into accounting and economics. I think it's a real shame. However, however, it is the greatest school in the Western United States. Oh, hands down, 100%. I'm glad you were distracted by accounting. I was not distracted by accounting. I never took an accounting class, a stats class, took the two econ classes. I was distracted by the beach and the people and the beautiful people on the beach. Man, that school has beautiful people. And I guess I was one of them for a while, but I was coming from New Mexico. I was kind of shocked when I went to that place. 
beach on if you if you're listening right now and you're from the midwest and you're in your car on 1.5 speed imagine your college is on a peninsula surrounded three sides by ocean and beach and the only people that live on the entire peninsula 22,000 people are between the ages of 18 and 22 and then imagine one year they forget to reinstate the no alcohol in the streets rule which happened when i was there took us six months to figure it out Oh my God, pandemonium, but what a great four and a half years for me. And what a great few years for you. So you didn't like accounting, but you feel like if you focus on something that you're pretty good at or have the ability to be good at and passionate about, and you're constantly pushing and expanding, pushing and expanding, pushing and expanding, eventually you'll become excellent. 100%. And also I would add to that too, that it's, it's about your own potential. You know, I think we get caught up a lot of times in trying to compare ourselves to others around us. And it's good to have a little friendly, healthy competition with our peers. But I think at the end of the day, you got to you got to drive yourself and make sure you're controlling what you can within your own abilities and, and staying in your own lane. So I also think it's good to not get too caught up in, in comparing yourself to everybody around you. And as I'm working with the kids, some of them have great grades and some of them don't have great grades. My son straight A's in his design classes, a lot of his business classes he struggled in. If that kid gets a B minus in many of the mathematical based business classes, that's excellent, man. That's excellent. If I got a C plus in an accounting class, that would be excellent for me. But according to your definition, I guess it's both ways. You need to find the things that you have a unique ability at, that you have a passion around, that you have potential in to devote your energy to. You can look at the strength finder test. You know, something that you're strong in, develop your strengths to become excellent. But we'll move on. We'll move on. Um, and, and speaking of, you're talking about uh, um, fulfill and expand your potential. We're going to get into your career. Um, you were in the wrong career at first, working, helping your dad out, working in a sheet metal contracting company that you were probably successful at, but you didn't have passion. You moved into real estate and over nine years, you've got a lot of properties. You've now kind of cresting that edge and becoming excellent real estate. We're going to talk about what it takes to become excellent real estate, what real estate is, exactly what Doug does. But before we do, we're going to go way back. Laverne High School, UC Santa Barbara, College Works. What was the preparation for this great career? And let's start in Laverne. So when you're in Laverne, and I mentioned this before, Laverne, Claremont, San Dimas, Rancho Cucamonga. Oh, yeah. All those. Uh, all those towns. I have knocked on every single door as of uh, as of 2008 construction. Pro oh, no, maybe not. How old am I? Way old. As of uh, as of 2000. I had probably knocked on every door in those towns. I know it well. Spent a lot of time driving back and forth. So you're in Laverne um, and at Bonita High School. Were you crushing it? Were you doing well? Were you on the edge of excellence way back then? What was life like? You know, uh, would I say I was on the edge of, of, edge of excellence back then? Not really. I, um, you know, uh, grades were important in our house. Uh, I live with a single mom and you know, she really pushed me to do well in school. I saw my dad every other weekend. He pushed me to do well in school. So I got pretty good grades. But as far as excellence, I don't know. It was a lot of hanging out with friends, just having a good time, hoping I one day get into a good college. Excellence, not so sure. But I did, um, did get a great SAT score. And I think on top of my slightly above average grades, that's what helped me to, to get into UC Santa Barbara, which I think really was where things took off for me. So there's a difference between um, having a plan and executing it and just dreaming. So maybe in high school, you're dreaming of going to a good school. You're not really executing. You're doing some certain things. And this has happened. Someone's listening right now. Like, they don't know. I'm, I'm from New Mexico. I didn't know what the hell was going on. So I'm just doing the best I can. Not really focused on long term. Um, just hoping it happens. Um, so you're not you're not really purposefully on a path. You're not living the purposeful life to go to UCSB, but you're a smart dude. You get good grades and you move to college. So when you get to college, were you purposely, all of a sudden, purposely planning and adhering to a plan to launch an excellent career? Or did you stumble across that too? Well, so coming into college, I, like you, Matt, I think I was just 
uh, floored by how beautiful it is at Santa Barbara, how much fun stuff there is to do there. And I think like everybody else, I got caught up in the fun year one as a freshman, you know, too much fun. We could talk about that all day, but, um, and then sophomore year, I started to think to myself, okay, this is going to be over in the blink of an eye. And when I come out of college, where am I going to be? What am I going to do? These next couple of years are going to be really important for me to uh, make sure that when I come out, I'm in, a, I'm well positioned to to have success in my life and in, and in my career. And so sophomore year, I started to think about it. Was I taking a lot of action on it? Not really. But um, sophomore year, starting to think about it, and um, and then junior year was when I when College Works came into my life. So. Interesting. So the purposeful life starts sophomore year. And and man, I remember two moments of my time at College Works. First one, freshman year, sociology class. I had to write a letter to my parents and I forget what the assignment was, but it basically turned into, oh my God, I was such a shithead in high school. I'm so sorry. And my dad to this day still has that letter, but I learned kind of the consequences of my behavior, impact on others. Maybe my prefrontal cortex was finally starting to form. And then I also learned, same class, same guy, who I believe was dating tennis players, so kind of a perverted teacher. But he brought up this uh, concept of scientific imagination, which kind of changed my mind, too, where he said, you cannot understand how other people think. You cannot, you know, I would never get into Al-Qaeda. Okay, you can't say that because you don't understand their upbringing and what what they've been through, which is humbling, and it's a lot bigger of a concept than I'm making out. But I just remember these two moments that changed my kind of assholeness. You know, these two moments my freshman year. I, however, was purposeful. I want to be a lawyer. Everything's about a lawyer. You have this epiphany sophomore year. And if you're listening right now, it could be happening right now in the car and you're 22 years old going, holy shit, I want to be like Doug. Um, it doesn't matter when it happens. It just matters that all of a sudden you realize, you know, life's short. This opportunity's short. What am I going to do to get ahead? So you're a sophomore, and I love that you said you thought about it, but you didn't start acting, right? So first you think, then you act, then you do and succeed. So you're sitting there sophomore year. What was your major, by the way? So it started off as a biz econ because I thought, okay, where's the business major? Here we go. The only thing was biz econ, and then come to find out in that first class, oh, this is accounting, and um, I'm not good at this. And so I quickly pivoted to global econ, which was a new developing department, global studies that uh, came about around the time that I started at ECSB. And it was interesting. And I had my, you know, my minor in French. um, So I was learning a little bit of French at the time. And um, it was a little bit of a, I would say, a cruise in that major that I switched into. Okay. And and you, you, you learn a little bit of French. So People that are on the edge of excellence say things like learned a little bit of when they minored in it. So you probably <laughs> learned a lot of French. You're probably pretty good at speaking French. At one time. I didn't get as much of an opportunity to use that later on. I, I my, uh, my dad's whole side of the family in Africa speaks French. And so that was that's why I uh, went down that path, took some in high school and then minored in, in, uh, in college. But um, But yeah, so... So, was, uh, so, so what's what's going on your your, your sophomore year between the uh, thinking and then doing? What are you figuring out? Are you starting to notice people are motivated around you? Are you starting to notice some of your friends are kind of losers? You want to be different? What's going on in your mind? Yeah, we're partying like crazy. I mean, the normal, the typical Don't ever week stop is that. the party starts Wednesday and goes all the way through Sunday. You know, take a couple of days off at the beginning of the week, Monday, Tuesday. But I, yeah, I was like. I can still have fun, but I need to start figuring something else out to, to begin to separate myself and set myself apart. So, um, so what, so I, the summer leading into my, my junior year, I got a summer job as, uh, uh, at Macy's and, um, I thought, okay, this is kind of a serious job. I can do this and maybe this is a stepping stone. And, and, um, I believe I actually, uh, was let go there. It was like a temp position, <laughs> got let go, and then ended up at Blockbuster Video, was, ended up being the summer job for that summer. And so those two jobs combined, by the time I started my junior year, I was like, wow, that, that was not 
my idea of, of really setting myself apart. I didn't self apart. I didn't get much out of those two jobs. And so I was kind of on the lookout coming out of that summer between my sophomore and my junior year. So uh, for those of you that don't know, Blockbuster Video is the old Netflix. Instead of going <laughs> on your TV, you'd walk in this yellow and blue building lined with about 9,000 videos you never want to watch. And then there was about four you did want to watch. And that was a routine that we would have. Wayne Heisenga started that. If your trash cans are sitting outside right now, he also started that company, Waste Management. He owned the Dolphins and a few other teams. One of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time. And then he missed the curve on Blockbuster. So you're one of the last employees at Blockbuster and maybe Macy's too. I think Macy's yeah. fell after you were there. So thank God you became an entrepreneur because you're screwed up all these other companies. So sophomore year, you got these, uh, I call them high school jobs. Uh, you know, you're, you're working these high school jobs and you realize, okay, this isn't working out. And then, so junior year, is that when you decided to come to the cult and work with college works? Yeah. So, uh, a, a young guy by the name of Justin Reese, who was a college works legend came waltzing into uh, the lecture hall and said, Hey, who wants to do a leadership management internship? If you're interested in getting more info, sign your name on this clipboard. And so I put my name down and couple of days later, I'm in a little info session with, with Justin. He's telling us, you know, make, you know, 15 grand over the summer, learn all these skills. And, and I was like, where do I, where do I sign up? And, um, and so that's really how sign it, up. <laughs> that's, that's how it came into my life. And, uh, and little did I know that this was going to be by far the most challenging thing I'd ever taken on. Yeah. You said to me, uh, it's the toughest challenge and one of the best things you've ever done. And I mean, I you've got two kids. There's nothing I've done harder. Actually, marriage. Marriage is the toughest thing I've ever done. And I'm happily <laughs> married for 25 and a half years. But man, it's not an easy thing, especially if you're married to me. And then I have two kids that are completely different. I mean, that's the second toughest thing I've ever done. And, you know, I've lost all my money, been through recessions, started in and sold a couple of companies that never got paid on. I've had some challenges. I always think back to College Works. My first year at College Works is the toughest thing I've ever done too. So maybe it's the toughest thing in business, you know, the most tears. And I, it, it's not, right? The, the zeros are less. The employee count was less. The severity of the issue was much less. But it sure felt like the toughest thing I've ever done. So why, why was it the toughest challenge and why was it also one of the best things, which is what you said to me in an email? Yeah, I I was completely shell-shocked, I think, upon starting because I always considered myself to be, you know, pretty good with people. And so I felt like I'll, I'll walk in here and it's going to be hard. But I never, I, I realized looking back, I'd never really done anything that would be considered hard, I think, by most people coming into College Works. So I didn't come in battle-tested whatsoever. I didn't come in with any real sales skills or natural sales ability. And I certainly didn't come in with any management or leadership skills or natural ability. So all those things uh, had to be learned the hard way. Like you mentioned earlier, the knocking on doors, hundreds and then probably thousands of doors throughout Pasadena, California. And, you know, being out there in the heat, getting in my car every Friday and driving two and a half hours from Santa Barbara to Pasadena for the weekend when all my buddies were back. And you didn't even uh, live in Pasadena. Well, my mom lived there. So, okay, okay, so okay. when, after I graduated high school, she moves over to Pasadena. So that's where I did my, my territory. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you add all those things up and it was extremely hard. So the springtime you're knocking on the doors, getting the business it took me a long time to book my first job. I, you know, kind of started from behind in the back of the pack. And then as this, the spring starts to go along, I start to gain momentum and, and the sales start to pick up. I start doing a little bit better. Then the summertime hits and now that's a whole new animal. And in the summertime, you know, hiring painters was so, so difficult for me. Um, I remember working on a job, painters not showing up. I'm sitting in my truck going, you know, what do I do? I have no painters here. I have no employees and the clients inside their house looking out through the window at me sitting in my truck. You know, you feel like crying. And um, so yeah, I mean, those those experiences were just so difficult. You know, you feel like quitting, but I think 
you know, despite all of it, and again, like I said, still the hardest thing I've done to this day, it just, I made up my mind at the very beginning that I wasn't going to quit. And so got through all of it and still the hardest thing I've ever done, but it, it, it prepared me so well for what came after that since then. Yeah, you know, you just kind of clarified a, a few thoughts for me. And there's probably a few College Works people listening because uh, we do get a big audience from College Works. And I'm going to move this episode up because right in, right about now is that time when they're sitting in their car about to cry, when they're dealing <laughs> with the I suck at this. So what I took out of that is for you and I, College Works was the toughest episode of our lives not because it really was, but because it was the first. It was the first tough thing we did. And the rest is kind of easier, even though the challenges have been much greater. I mean, coming up with uh, the money to go get the properties you're getting, de dealing with the recession in 2008 and coming out of the recession into asset management is kind of interesting when everybody's nervous, you know, you, you know having the kids deciding to get married, buying a house, you know, all these things are really stressful. But the college works thing was the first really stressful thing. And everything else becomes easy when you do something that's really hard because you've built some of the skills that weren't existent before. So it's easier the next time you build grit, though, too, you know, sitting in your car, almost crying. You build grit because you suck and you're sitting in your car sucking and people are looking at you. And you have to go face the music. And there are people that have run away from that. You put their head in the sand. But you have to learn that it's easier to deal with it now than later. It's easier to deal with it than running away. So you're having these life lessons that kind of prepare you for the next step. So you're in College Works. You're having these life lessons. Someone asked me to say, whenever I have College Works people on the on the show to ask, you know, what was your biggest obstacle and how'd you get over it? So that manager year and know that there are some College Works people listening and then a bunch of people that don't work in College Works land or don't live in College Works land. What, you know, what was your biggest obstacle? How'd you get over it? And what did it do for you later in life? In College Works? Yeah. Well, I think, um, like I said, just realizing that you have the responsibility of working on somebody's largest investment. So you're knocking on the doors and you're doing the sale, the marketing, the sales, you sitting in their, their living room, kitchen going, I'm going to paint your house. Here's how I'm going to do it different. You know, you learn all these hit this, the six point sales cycle or whatever it was called. And um, so doing that sales process is one thing, but then showing up in the summertime when it's time to come paint and hire people for the first time and manage people for the first time. I mean, it is a whole nother animal to deliver on those promises that you made in the springtime when you booked the job. And so, you know, it, it, I ended up with a very success at the end of it being successful, but I just remember the first half, you know, I hired a buddy and I hired an, a random person um, through the interview process. We do all our interviews at the McDonald's over here in Pasadena, California. And um, so my buddy, you know, I, you, you feel like at least I can count on him. So at least, at the very least, I know this guy. He's, you know, we've been friends for forever. I know I can count on him. So two weeks in, he calls me up and he's like, Doug, thanks for the opportunity, but I'm out. And so he bails on me. The other guy that was on the crew with him, he was talking S behind my back to the clients. He was filling pain. Oh, no, this, is, this, is, this is my podcast. We don't, <laughs> we don't abbreviate cuss words. He was, talk, he, was talking, he was talking shit about you. Okay. <laughs> He was talking shit uh, to the clients uh, behind my back. And I found all this out through my friend. But I mean, that's how it started off. Those, that was my first crew. And, you know, as you go through the summer, you end up probably working with five or six different crews as you go along. But the problems that you encounter with the people that you employ on in these jobs, like you would never know it until you go through it. And it's just just one thing after the next slapping you across the face. And then, um, and then, you know, wanting so badly to, to, to give your clients that, that beautiful paint job, have them happy with, with what you delivered. And in the beginning, having a really difficult time bringing that to, to reality. So I'd say that was probably the hardest obstacle. And, you know, once I finally got good painters, I held on to them and 
you know, we did a lot of excellent work uh, for my clients in the later part of the summer. But, you know, you do your best. And in the beginning, that's just how it is. You know, you have to realize that you're not, it's not going to be perfect in the beginning. You hope your clients will have grace for you and the struggles that you're going through as this college student who's just trying to, to uh, you know, have success in life. And um, yeah, a lot of the clients do give you that grace. Some don't, but that's okay. And then in the end of the summer, you look back and you go, wow, look at this amazing business I just ran as a 21-year-old. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I wonder if it's really true. And the reason why I wonder if it's true was when I got done with my year, I was convinced I did a bad job. And I, I think what you're saying in the, I mean, you put pain on it, you take pain off. We, we didn't choose college works eye surgery because you're blinding people. If you screw up, we didn't choose college works heart surgery or rocket science because you have to know so much about the specific field. And we're about learning things that apply to any field. But the funny thing is about college works. And now we have safety inspectors that go around and also inspect for quality. But for years, we didn't have any of that. And we were one of the highest rated, if not the highest rated by customer, uh, by our customer service uh, analysis or reporting. And we still are. I mean, we have complaints, but we solve the complaints. And we're in a business where if you screw up, you just sand whatever you just did off or you put more on. You put paint on or you take paint off. You can fix it. You know, worst case scenario, you spill something. Well, it's water-based. You can rinse it off if you get to it fast enough. So the mistakes are correctable. And what I found was I felt like I did a bad job. What I found was I didn't. And I know because I used to go up to Santa Barbara and check the houses out because I was so paranoid for years and years and years. Now, you probably remember the Alan Gaines story. I went and checked his house out after 10 years, still the same job I did. So I bet it was harder to get to the good result. And I bet some of your customers had to be patient in the beginning to get there. And I bet some of the jobs took a little longer and you didn't make as much profit. But the solution to this obstacle was finding the right people. And I just want to just take a second and I'm going to move this podcast up so people can hear it earlier than just in the summer where it's scheduled now. Uh, We tell people you need to hire three people or four for every one you want working and nobody ever believes us and they always take forever to hire them and then they start the summer and their buddy may work out and the other person they hire doesn't or vice versa and about half the people a couple weeks into the summer realize we were right but they didn't listen to us at the beginning so uh, for those of the people listening right now that are college works people, or if you're in your car listening at 1.5 speed and you want to go into real estate or you want to go into accounting or something else, I think it's a, the, the universal concept is true. Not everybody you hire is going to show up the first day. Not everybody you hire is going to stay to the second day. Not everybody you hire is a good fit and you're not a good fit for everybody. What's your, what's your, if you were going to, if you were sitting in front of a bunch of college works people or a bunch of new entrepreneurs, that we're about to hire people, why do they need to hire way more than they think they do? Yeah, that's a great point. I, I kind of glossed over that, I think, in what I was saying before, which is, you know, I remember Jane Kim, my DM. Shout out to Jane Kim and Justin Schultz flying all over the world <laughs> in their new private jet, living life, never yes. working, skiing on the islands. Oh, yeah. what, what a life College Works built for those two. Holy moly, Jane Kim's birthday present was a private jet to Napa and a big one. We love Jane Kim. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, we do. So are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with this podcast. It's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Matt and the rest of the team put together the edge of excellence bundle. In it, you'll find different tools that relate to overarching themes and topics of the show. Things like disk assessment tools, time management strategies and tactics, stress and anxiety management tools, exclusive videos and episodes from this podcast that is not released anywhere else, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of the show, you can access the Edge of Excellence bundle 100% for free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get access, all you have to do is go to www.collegeworks.com slash podcast and fill out the short form there for us to get the bundle over to you. Once again, it's www.collegeworks.com slash podcast. Now, back to the show. 
she um she said doug keep doing interviews and johnny reed keep doing interviews do interviews be doing interviews you get so caught up in all the other minutia going to Frazee to pick up paint going and dropping this ladder off going and doing this grabbing that and there's so many things to do but really at the end of the day if you have the right people working for you and you have good painters the rest kind of falls into place like the number one thing is having the right people working for you which i've found out then and i've i've found out continued to find out through the rest of my career here and uh you know i think the the tendency is let me just quickly hire somebody i need some i need a body so you hire a warm body get them painting and they suck or um or they're slow or they're unreliable and you got to keep doing the interviews until you have people that you are beyond stoked about and when you have that like I said, the rest will will fall into place. No, if you have that, keep doing the interviews because it may change. <laughs> and then, yeah, you're not guaranteed that they're, they're going to be there forever. So yeah, keep it. Keep those interviews going. Yeah, there's a lesson from this podcast. No matter what business you're in, always be hiring, looking for the best people, even if you don't need the best people. And there's Jack Daly's got to talk on that. There's lots of business philosophers that talk about that and lots of business people that don't listen to that because they're overly optimistic. I call it the entrepreneur's optimism. Sometimes it gets out of control. Plan for the worst, expect the best. So you do the College Works gig. Again, I got to say, really isn't anybody in the world that you love more than Jane Kim and Justin Schultz, is there? God, you know, so, I didn't know so Justin awesome. that well, but Jane was a huge, huge uh, part of my success in my all my year, three years with College Works. So yeah, I, I have to give her a lot of credit. I got to give uh, Johnny Ree also a lot of credit over there. Now's the time in the podcast where you pull over, you press pause, you get out your phone and you text that person that impacted your life, which Doug better do at the end of this. And you say, thank you. And in this case, uh, Justin changed my life. Jane changed my life. I almost built a statue to Jane in front of our office uh, <laughs> and changed Doug's life. So shout out to the shout out to the mentors in the world and shout out to the mentees who actually listened. So you did the college works gig. You graduated from Santa Barbara. You had to move off the beach. It was, wasn't that great. You live in a college with an ocean view right on the beach for some of those years. It was and only then, the best. It was only the best thing ever. On yeah, Del Playa, shimmying down a straight. rope, like we're we're like, you're like 80 feet above the water on a cliff, and you're dumb college students, so you tie a rope to a chain link fence, which is just so stupid, and shimmy down, and then when you get down there, if you get wet, you can't climb back up because you can't get on the rope, and people are throwing bikes off the cliff on you. It was great times, great times. <laughs> so you, so you get out of that, you get out of that crazy zone with your prestigious degree and you go into business with your dad in a sheet metal business which you found out was his dream not your dream what was the big lesson from the two years working in your dad's sheet metal company helping him um ramp it up and grow and and also find some time for himself what was your big lesson that helped you move into asset management well it, it uh, goes back to what we were just talking about with getting good people you know he was taking it all on by himself and running himself into the ground and so when I reflect back on that time with him, you know, I, I feel proud that I went in and helped him to reorganize things so that it'd be more sustainable for him long-term. If he had kept running it the way he was running it, I mean, his health would probably be in shambles and, you know, he, he wouldn't be uh, able to spend the time with his grandkids like he does and, and go around do, doing all the travel that he does. So so that was the big takeaway. I think I kind of took a step back to help him move things forward. I did ha have a lot of time to myself during that period to think on what my next move and chapter was going to be. And that led me to real estate. And it led me to real estate at a time in 2008 when the world was crashing and real estate was, was on fire. Uh, values were plummeting. And it was it was a catastrophic time in the real estate business when I entered it. And it's about to be again. So uh, we're going to talk about why entering in a catastrophic time. But, you know, my son's a junior. There's a lot of juniors in college, seniors in college, recent graduates that listen to this show. And we're about to crest the wave here. And a lot of people think that we're going to have another one of these real estate crashes because the interest is too high. The prices have gone up. The world's in a weird zone. Um, so you, we might be looking at late 2023, 24, maybe definitely not as bad as 2008. I, I called it right here. Definitely not as bad. But why was it good to cut your teeth 
in a pretty volatile industry. Real estate's up and then it crashes, up and then it crashes. And by the way, as you get older, you can predict it. You can see it when the banks start crashing, which they just did. And the real estate, first the mortgage banks go, that was a year ago. Then the shipping industry goes. Mortgage banks a year before the recession, it was a year ago. Shipping just shut down three months ago. No one's shipping anything. Then you got the banks crashing. So I'm predicting maybe this summer, we start to get into some bad times. Right when the seniors graduate and want to go into real estate, I started my business, or we, sorry, I said I, we, mostly my partners, Jay and Spence, started our business in a recession. And then we started some other companies in a recession. We lost some companies in a recession too. Why was it a good idea to be cutting your teeth in this volatile industry at one of the worst times in history to be in that industry? I think a lot of it, I would chalk up to naivete. Just, you know, I had nothing to lose uh, in 2008. You know, I had only a few few shekels to my name. So, you know, I think that helps. I, I also... I reflect back to that time and I, you don't know what you don't know. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to go into real estate. So there's two options here. I can be a real estate agent or I can be a loan officer. I thought those were the only two paths. Oh, that would have been the worst time to be a loan officer. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and so I called up uh, your, pe- your partner, Spencer Pepe. And I knew that he had a mortgage company at the time uh, down, there, down here in Orange County. I was living in, in the San Gabriel Valley in LA. And I said, Hey, Spencer, uh, I'd love to get into real estate. Can I come work at your mortgage company? And he said, as much as I'd love to bring you on here, we're going down in flames in, in this mortgage mortgage business. Now's not the time for you to try to get into this, the, the mortgage business. But I do have a good friend of mine who is starting up a loss mitigation company, an asset management company. And that is where I think you're going to see opportunities right now as the market's crashing. So let me introduce you to this guy, see if you can get an interview and, and maybe he'll take you on. So I get into this, this business in 08. It's a, it's a startup company with only 40 employees. He offers me 2,500 bucks a month to come on, which, you know, obviously isn't, isn't much, but it was an opportunity to come in and learn. And um, within a year of working there, we went from 40 employees to two or 300 employees. So the business had exploding growth. They were one of the biggest buyers of non-performing mortgage loans in the country. And I had the opportunity to learn there and got promoted pretty quickly to account executive and then asset manager. And um, it was perfect timing for that business. So Spencer, Jay, Jeff, and I live in a, a kind of a communist society where we share everything. So I was partners in that mortgage bank. Oh, really? Okay. Interesting thing was Dan and Spencer started that, and then we came in later. But Spencer had to finish the year 2007 and didn't want to share the profits, so he took out like half a million bucks in 2007, and then we came in in 2008. And he doesn't remember this, but there was a lot when we decided to do it in the summer. There was a lot of money to be made in that last five months. And we missed out on that. And then we came in at the end, which not a deal I would do again, and enjoyed all the losses and driving that business into the ground. Um, who was the guy that had started the Connor Capital? John Dorio. And uh, and then uh, the other guy was uh, Contulus. So it was Con from Contulus and Dor from Dorio. Oh, Condor, not Connor. Okay. Um, yeah, so I know who that is. All right. Um, so you're doing... Condor Capital, you're learning the mortgage industry, you're learning the distressed asset industry, and then you move, you decide to just take off and go on your own and start nationwide community revitalization in 2014. So after just a few years there, well, it was quite a few years, five or six years, what was the impetus to become an entrepreneur? What was it like starting out? What were the roadblocks that you came over and the lessons you learned? Well, I think after being at College Works, I always imagined that I would get back to it. You know what I mean? It was kind of tough actually going from operating your crews and, and having all the responsibilities that you have as a as a as a branch manager and then as a district manager with College Works. And then all of a sudden I find myself in this cubicle. And I realized that I had to do that to to learn that business if I wanted to eventually go back out on my own. And um so I studied and I learned, I earned some money in those five years. And I think it was year three or four, I started thinking to myself, okay, how do I, I started planning my exit strategy? How do I go out on my own 
Am I ready? What do I need? I met a guy who was uh, purchasing assets from our company, just a one-off investor who was only a few years older than me. And just, I could tell he was a good guy and I could tell he was already doing pretty, pretty damn well for himself. And so I invited him to uh, go out to dinner with me. He said, no, shut me down. I circled back to him a year later, asked him again. And second time he said, okay, let's go. And then um, we, we met up a couple of times and I said, Hey, I want to, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I am going to go out on my own. I'd love to do it with you and partner up. And he said, I'm not making you any promises. So I'd love to work with you as well, but just know, like, I'm, I can't give you a salary. I, you know, uh, if we come into this, it's going to be as a, as a partnership and we're starting from the ground up. He already had a successful business over here. So we were going to start up the own, our own entity together. And, um, and so we did it. It was one of the scariest things that I've done since college works was walking away from, you know, a six figure income and the safety and stability of having a paycheck coming in every month to all of a sudden, like, where's my next meal going to come from. But, uh, I quickly realized between him and, and what he was willing to do, despite already kind of having made it himself. He was in there with the, in the trenches with me. We were working together, not me doing all the work and him bringing the capital. It was both of us bringing our, our minds and brain power and resources together. So we created this amazing partnership. And by the end of 14, we were kind of starting to see some success and, and uh, overcoming those first hurdles. So you, you always knew that you'd be back was the first thing you said. So you were independent, running the business in the trenches, getting it out. And then you rise up and see all you learn and see that success. And then you came back to college works as a district manager for two years. So really cementing the lessons, teaching others. And we do better training for the district managers and the interns, even though we're famous for the interns. You go into this business five years, learning as much as you can, making some money, socking it away paying the piper, learning and studying and learning and studying. And then you walk away from the security because you have that bug. And what were the biggest obstacles as you started your businesses? And what were those lessons um, that you're still using today? Well, um, one of the things that before I get into obstacles, one of the things that that made it a good decision for me and made it so that I felt the confidence, I think, to do it was the timing of it. So my overhead was super low, no kids, no mortgage, wasn't married to my now wife at that time. So, you know, my overhead at that time was maybe three, four grand a month. So that, that I think took away a little bit of the, the fear of what people feel when they're considering walking away from their job and security of a, a corporate gig. But as far as obstacles, you know, I think I thought it would be a little bit easier to acquire assets and um, that's, that's how we make our money in, in our business is being able to buy assets. And, um, and so when he and I partnered together, he had some capital. I had a little, I had access to some investors and capital as well. Um, but we went the first six months without acquiring a single deal. And so I'm getting up every morning, opening up my laptop, touching with people, sending out emails, making calls, trying to run down some assets that we can buy. And we got shut out in the first six months. And then finally- Are you getting outbid? Is that what's happening? Why are you getting shut out? Yeah, we're getting outbid. You know, there's always a lot of funny things happening, I think, on the secondary market. So the the business originally was was purchasing non-performing second mortgages. And so that's how we kind of started things off. And- yeah, we're getting outbid in some cases. We're bidding on, on a pool that we think is owned by the person that sent us the list. Find out it's actually owned by this person and getting sent out by a bunch of other people over here. Just a lot of funny business. And and um, and yeah, just trying to figure out where the pricing is. Because obviously, if you pay too much, you're going to end up buying a deal that you're just working to get back to breaking even or losing money. Try not to lose money. So you can't, you don't want to overbid. And then if you underbid, you're getting beat out. So it's like finding that sweet spot of where to be on pricing and the market's always shifting as well. So like the price today may be very different than the price tomorrow, you know, six months from now. So all those different variables were, were, uh, working against. And, and, um, finally we get our first, our first, uh, six assets in June or July of that 2014 year, that first year. 
And so that's a big success. However, that's not money coming into your business. That's money going out. And so that's just the beginning of the beginning, really. Um, it felt great to finally break through and, and be able to have some deals in our portfolio to work. But now we got to go and collect the money and, and monetize these assets. And so it wasn't until almost the end of that first year where we had our first dollar actually come in the door. Yeah. So I, I uh, someone asked me if I had some advice for Gen Z, what would it be? And I said, patience because they want to make a bunch of money by the time they're 35, retire by the time they're 35, start a business when they're right out of school, blah, 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 blah. It's like, holy moly, you're going to live 120 years. Be patient. So your entrepreneur experience is, A, lower your overhead. Don't go buy the new Bronco. Don't go buy a new Grand Cherokee. Don't get yourself a Mercedes. Um, you know, cheaper rent, cheaper everything. Lower your overhead. Second thing, roommates, roommates, yeah. Second thing learn and study. Most entrepreneurs go learn and study somewhere before they become an entrepreneur. It's a lot easier to learn and study when you have other people there training you that know what they're doing than learning and study on your own. Third thing is you got to have some savings. And you talk about investors. Some of those investors are Chase Bank and American Express and credit cards. Some of those investors are friends and family. None of those investors are usually institutional or banks, um, but you need to have some savings. And then the big one, it's twice as hard as you think it's going to be. And you're going to get surprised by what the challenge is. You never think it's going to be hard to go buy houses, maybe make money on them, maybe fix them up, maybe sell them, maybe design this uh, rent to own system. But actually the acquiring them, how hard is that? Well, six months hard, six months of no pay hard, six months of expenses hard. So that's kind of the entrepreneurial path. It's hard. You've got to have that grit. You developed your grit in, in quite a few jobs, including one of the tougher ones in college. College works. And so you move into this, you get your first six assets. And nowadays you have 500 assets uh, and you have this rent to own niche. So I, I'm interested in what's special and unique about nationwide community revitalization. What's the niche and what's this rent to own situation? Why do you do that? Yeah. So we partnered with a third guy at the end of 2014. And he's the one that brought this, this beautiful business model into our lives. And um, so the three of us got together. He had access to the properties to buy. My other partner had access to a lot of investors and capital, and I had operational abilities. And, and um, okay, so wait, 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 wait. And I love partnerships. I, I can't even imagine not having my partners. They're brothers to me. I've been with my partners longer than I've been with my wife. My partner, Jay, convinced me to be a better boyfriend to my wife because she was my first girlfriend and I would have never been married. I would have never had the wonderful kids I have if it wasn't for my partners. I would make decisions by myself, which, you know, I can make decisions, but it's so much easier when I have people to bounce them off of. So you end up with three partners and your partners are a capital person, an operational person. And what was the third person? Uh, access to inventory, the product inventory person. So when you're selecting partners, my partners are all exactly the same as me. When it worked out great, Worked out great. All the same skill sets, all the same. We have to hire people with different skill sets. Another way to do it is to find people that you're going to be able to be married to for 30 years that have different skill sets. So you're identifying people with slightly different skill sets, slightly different backgrounds. They're bringing different things to the table to be partners with. And, and so he brings this new model. What's the model? What do you guys do? Okay. So, you know, with rent to own, I think people hear that sometimes and there's a little bit of a stigma to it because what can happen with a lot of companies that offer rent to own is, all right, you got two years to clean up your credit. You're going to give us an option fee up front. And then if you don't have your credit in a position to be able to qualify for a traditional mortgage, by the time the two years is up, you lose everything that you've invested in this home and you walk and start over, right? And if you, and if you got into that deal two years ago and you had pretty bad credit. Now you have okay credit. You're not getting that loan. So the, the, you got to watch the economy. If you're going into that deal at the peak of the economy, you're probably going to be shit out of luck. So what do you guys do different? So our, the difference with our model is we offer a five-year initial lease. And as long as they make all their payments for the five years, we will offer them full-term financing at the end of the five years. So they can still qualify, get their credit up and qualify for a traditional mortgage to buy the house out at any point during that five years, and they're going to get a better, better interest rate that way. But they have a guarantee that if they make all their payments to us and fulfill the contract, that we will 
guarantee that financing at the end of the five years. Okay, I got to get nerdy here because I was partners in a mortgage bank. How do you do that? How do you guarantee someone just because they make their payments and they have a 580 credit score? How do you guarantee it? you must be operating your own warehouse line or what are you doing? Well, so these are, you know, we're not financing them to go buy another house. These are homes we already own, right? Okay. And so, so you're, you're a lender, your uh, owner financing. Correct. So by the time they finish their first five years, we've already kind of recouped most of our initial cost basis in the asset. And then now we can just, you know, say, if you want to continue in the home, well, here's, here's your seller financing contract. And, and then you can still, if you don't like our 10, 11, 12% interest rate, you can still go to your bank or go to your mortgage company and still try to see if you can get that market interest rate to, to lower your monthly expense. So, so you, have always mortgages, have you have mortgages on the homes and you have, and you have capital in the homes. Um, you're paying your payment and you're charging a premium because there's a risk there. And, and you can lose. So you're making a little bit of money on the spread when you win, losing a little money when you lose, netting out probably positive and front-loading your your uh, recuperation of the assets in the beginning. Interesting Correct. model. Correct, yeah. And you're helping people that need help, which I love. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I love CollegeWorks. We're, it's, not a, it's not Tom's shoes that we're gonna donate a shoe every time. It's not make a bunch of money and then help the world. It's everything we do helps the world. And it happens to be a, a profitable business. Everything you do is helping the world and it's a profitable business. I love it. Yeah, we've helped over 300 families get into homes now. So uh, it, it's definitely um, very rewarding. Wow, wow, wow. So what's a day in a life for you now running this? Now you're nine years in, you've got a lot of assets. Um, we, got the, we got an understanding of what it takes to start it. We got an understanding of some of the challenges. What's in a day in life? Like what does, what's your title? I just call myself a managing member because I'm a managing member of the LLC. So everybody's um, a managing but, director. <laughs> yeah, me and my, it's just me and my, so the third partner ended up splitting off. He was like, you know what guys, I'm still running my other business over here. So running these two at the same time, with the hyper growth that you guys want to do is just, I never see my wife. Um, <laughs> this, I got to slow down. So he, he broke off and then nationwide ended up just being me and my one other partner. And so initially it was me and him doing everything. And he's like, Doug, you really got to get yourself an assistant, you know? And I couldn't, uh, Jordan. Three, what's that? Is your assistant named Jordan? No, my assistant's Kevin. Oh, okay. And he's, a. Uh, He's, not, he's technically, his title is operations manager. And he came into us four years ago, middle of 2019 with no real estate experience. And he's just been phenomenal. Young guy, smart, bright, hardworking, proactive, all the things that you'd want to see. And so he and I would meet every single week, every Wednesday. And I just try to take everything out of my head and put it into his. And he downloads it quickly and takes it and applies it. And now he does about 80% of what I used to do. So, so yeah. first of all, you got to go back to the hiring experience, how to find the right person. You got burned with a few people back in college. Uh, so you learn this hiring through a variety of experiences to hire the right person. Then you got to deal with the delegation skills. Delegation and abdication are pretty close. Abdication, you just dump th something on somebody. Delegation is you teach them how to do it. Um, there's some metrics in place. You're monitoring it and you're giving them the right things that they know how to do, teaching them the things they don't know how to do. So over time, um, Kevin's developed these skills. You First of all, Kevin was a good guy when you hired him. Second of all, um, Kevin proved himself in the first 90 days. And third of all, Kevin's been being taught and delegated to and proving himself. And now he's able to do 80% of what you were doing. So what's your, what's your life spent doing um, now a, a little bit higher up the ladder? So now it's mostly kind of working with the personnel, making sure that we're, that we have the best processes and continually improving upon each of those and just developing and training our team, recruiting new, new team members, the, the vision for the company going forward. So that's, that's really most of it. I do, I, we have Slack. So I do get uh, pulled into individual assets a little bit more than I'd like, because, you know, you know, we have a, a hole in the roof on this property. Furnace went out over here on that property in Oklahoma. And so I do get pulled into certain things uh, still a little bit more than I'd like and try to help problem solve where I can. But yeah, a lot, of, a lot of it's more higher level stuff now because we do have a team of 14 people in addition to my partner and myself that are all working remote and handling all the different 
aspects, aspects of the business. So the upper level entrepreneur experience, you go from being an entrepreneur to being an entrepreneurial CEO, and you're spending time recruiting the right people, probably constantly, helping train the right people, develop the training systems, probably constantly, always setting the vision of where we're going, monitoring what, what everybody's doing. And then every once in a while, every entrepreneur gets sucked in the weeds. For me, I love it. I love when they suck me into the weeds because what I get to do is sit there and talk to 20-somethings about their life, about their skill set. And I love that. That's kind of what I'm put on this earth to do. Most of the time, though, when you get stuck in the weeds, it's doing something that you wish you weren't doing. So you go back to delegation, train, a vision, maybe the vision of you guys can solve this problem. You don't need me. And, and that becomes kind of the day to day. Different. Sometimes being in the weeds is more fun, um, but it's a little bit of a different job. So when you look back at uh, this long career, by the way, you look exactly the same as you looked on the beach in Cancun in 2004. Yeah, I appreciate, so, yeah, I appreciate that. Congratulations to you on your diet and your supplements. Um, uh, when you look back, there's some sacrifices you made. You mentioned a few of them. When you think about, you know, some of the biggest sacrifices you made, and you think, God, I can't even imagine that. I thought that was a sacrifice. I'm so glad I made that sacrifice. What was it and uh, what'd you learn from it? So I think the biggest sacrifice, which we touched on just briefly earlier, was uh, leaving the most epic parties every weekend at UC Santa Barbara to drive home to my territory. I mean, you go from, like I said, every weekend, it's Thursday to Sunday, sometimes Wednesday to Sunday. It's like, okay, what are we doing tonight? Which party are we going to tonight? Who's having the cake tonight? Blah, blah, blah. To all of a sudden, it's like, Okay, Friday, after I get out of my last class, I'm jumping in my Toyota Corolla with my laundry and I'm driving down to Pasadena. And that's, that's my Friday ritual now, um, which was, you know, very much a shock to the system, especially when not only are you doing that drive down every Friday, you're waking up early Saturday morning to begin knocking on doors and trying to get business. And um, so that was every weekend. And I think that that's certainly a enormous sacrifice. I still found time for fun, still found time to get good enough grades to graduate, but huge sacrifice there. And then the other sacrifice, which I spoke to earlier, I think is, uh, you know, walking away from a six figure income um, to not knowing when your next uh, check is going to come. I think that's a pretty big sacrifice too. And you learn it's not so bad. It's it, it, uh, investing in your future is like investing in retirement. It's got compound interest. You do it when you're 21. You end up at I don't know how old you are. 30. How old I'm, you? I'm turning 40. Uh... Oh my God! You're turning 40 and you look like this. You need to go <laughs> back to drinking by this week. I don't understand. By the way, I, I never left that lifestyle until recently when my doctor told me I had to. Uh, Wednesdays when I go mountain biking, a couple of cocktails, Thursday, go to Cato's house, Friday's Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, I call lazy Sunday. So that's that UCSB style that never left me. And now that I'm 50, the doctor said, Hey, Matt, you can't do that anymore, which is kind of a bummer. Um, so, so you, 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 you learn that I don't need to only have fun. And if I invest a little time elsewhere and I develop some of these other more adult like routines, I get to have more fun when I'm 40. Yeah, absolutely. And you get to drop your kids off at school and you get to go to the play and you get to go to the whatever the little dress up things they do and the whatever that stone soup thing that they do is and all that stuff that you're enjoying with a two and a five-year-old. Is that what you have, two and five? Three, three and five, yeah. The five-year-old just had a jogathon down the street at her elementary school yesterday. So I jumped on the bike, went down there. Middle and, of the day, you get to do yeah. that when you pay the piper early and go home with your laundry on Friday night and leave the kegger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if we can if we can just make those sacrifices and work hard when we're when we're young, then we don't have to kill ourselves and work quite so hard later in life. And it just becomes harder and harder as you start to have a family, higher overhead, more responsibilities, more things pulling at your time. Um, so you want to do that early on when when you have all the time in the world when you're young. Wow. And the energy. And the energy. Yeah. Well, Doug, thank you so much for making time to come on the Edge of Excellence. Loved hearing your story and congratulations on all your success. Matt, thank you for having me. This is as fun, actually probably a little more fun than I even thought it would be. Uh, great to reconnect with you and I uh, appreciate you having me on. Yeah. See you soon down at Pizza Port. See you there. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on the Edge of Excellence podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this. 
If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this exact episode with them. This show exists to showcase what is possible when young leaders are willing to step out of their comfort zone and choose to excel in their lives. To learn more about our internship for young and ambitious students, www.oneinternship.com podcast to see if it's something that makes sense for you. Once again, it is www.oneinternship.com podcast. Let this be a reminder for you to live on the edge of excellence in your business and life. See you next time.